0: Making Media tells the story of our media business, Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this.
1: Welcome to
2: Making Media.
1: Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier.
2: Gosh, that was such a good start to an interview.
0: Welcome back to Making Media. Today, we are talking Marvel. It's the cinematic universe that's made over $30 billion at the box office. And that's just the Hollywood piece. The merchandise for Marvel is said to have generated over $40 billion for Disney. And remember, Disney acquired Marvel for $4 billion in 2009. So even though that's comparing a top-line number to an acquisition number, something tells me the profit margins on that more than paid back for that original acquisition. Our guest today is Joanna Robinson, who has written what I'd consider to be the definitive book on Marvel's history. We cover the history of Marvel from the pre-Disney days and even the pre-Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man days, and what led to the explosion in what happened over the past 15 years. We also cover what seems like a fall from grace in recent years. And Joanna gets into details on all of this. She has had so many conversations, and we can't recommend the book highly enough. So please enjoy this conversation on Marvel, and stick around for our debrief at the end of the episode. Joanna, we are very excited to have you here. We were excited to potentially bring you on before... The book was even released. But now that it's released, it was even a better time. I just want to start out with a very simple introduction of your own relationship to Marvel and how that evolved from whether you were a consumer at an early age to getting in the absolute weeds here with this company, with the brand, with everything around it over the past few years into the book. Just the backstory to how this all came to be from your own personal side of things.
2: What I love saying about my early background is that I was not a comic book reader. That is true. I did every single 90s kid watch X-Men, the animated series, but I wasn't a comic book reader. But what's funny about that is that Kevin Feige, head of Marvel Studios, also wasn't a comic book reader. So I was like, "Ah, I'm in pretty good company there. That's okay. But I came to comics a little later, sort of in my 20s. And then in terms of covering Marvel Studios, the films and eventually TV that they put out. I've always been interested in genre properties and geek-flavored properties. So it was in my wheelhouse. And then it just became the predominant thing so that even people who didn't cover, same way that Game of Thrones took over television, like so even people who weren't used to covering comic book stories or sci-fi fantasy or whatever, if you cover film and television, you have to cover this story because it is the biggest story going in the industry. <laughs> Through that I got to write a cover story for Vanity Fair about Marvel Studios back in 2017. And that was a really incredible experience and it taught me a lot about Some of the inner workings of Marvel, but it also kicked up a lot of questions for me that I wasn't able to answer in the short time that you're given to write a, a magazine story and B couldn't fit in even some of the answers that I did get in the margins of the narrow column word count that you get in a magazine story. So when... Norton, our publisher, came calling in 2019 to say, do you want to write a book about Marvel? And my co-author, Dave Gonzalez, and I had been talking about all these questions we had behind the scenes for years. I called up Dave. I was like, hey, do you want to take some time to get all those answers to all those (laughs) questions we have? And he said, yeah, let's do it. So that's how we wound up writing the book with the great Gavin Edwards as well.
0: I like the Early story and making that comparison to Kevin Feige. So if there was any question over who was the right person to write this, I think based on Kevin's success with the brand, you're in good company.
2: Is it hubris to say that? No. But I mean, obviously <laughs> I'm not really comparing myself to Kevin Feige, but I do think something that we cover in the book that some of his colleagues at Marvel who did grow up on comics said was they're not sure the the MCU would have been as successful if it were run by someone who was too far inside that world, that there was something about Kevin's outside-looking-in approach to comic book storytelling that made those movies more friendly to people who were just coming to comic book stories for the first time.
0: We're going to get into some of the specifics in the history, but if we stay on that point in terms of Marvel's success, if you had to rank these four things in terms of their importance to the success of Marvel... I'm curious your thoughts on this. If I were to say the IP itself, the comic book characters, Kevin Feige is number two. The actors as number three and Downey Jr. Where he was and his point when he became Iron Man. And then technology is number four in terms of what technology allowed them to do in terms of unlocking the possibilities. How would you rank those four things in terms of the driving of Marvel's success?
2: That's so funny. It's so hard to do because you really have identified the core (laughs) ingredients in the recipe. And it's so funny. As you were listening, I was like, well, Kevin Feige would say it's the characters. And Downey, of course, would say it's Downey (laughs) himself. I would say Feige first. Honestly, Downey second characters third, and then VFX fourth. But VFX, the technology is very important. Just because I put it last doesn't mean it's not important. It's deeply important that because coming off an era of comic book superhero storytelling in the 90s and early aughts and looking at some of the visual effects that were in practice in some of those properties. If you remember the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern, stuff like that, where she looks like CGI soup a lot of the time, it was very important with Iron Man, specifically the first Iron Man movie that they had the ability to make that suit look like it was heavy and substantial and an actual person flying around in the sky rather than
1: pixels, essentially. Was that Feige himself who brought the importance of technology to the films early on? Or was there someone close to him who he was working with to make sure that that was part of the films?
2: I don't know that, how much I would lay that at Feige necessarily. They were working on Iron Man, Industrial Light and Magic. I actually think it might be more on Favro, Given what Favreau has gone on to do in the realm of VFX, it makes a lot of sense, does it? I think that what's interesting about Favreau is that he was hired as... A character relationship director. You know, he's hired off of Elf essentially is the movie that got him his MCU gig. He did make the movie Zathura, which is pretty VFX heavy. And, Zathora is one of my favorite little bits of MCU history ephemera because Favreau makes Zathora a little scene Jumanji sequel, but he goes to Marvel after he makes Zathora and he brings a whole bunch of people who worked on Zathora with him who are still at Marvel. Luis Esposito, who's number two at Marvel Studios. Worked on Zathora and Favreau brought him over. So I just love Zathora as a secret origin minor league talent pool for the majors that is Marvel Studios. But I think Favreau's VFX curiosity, which he has gone on and on and on to explore, certainly is an important part of that mixture.
1: Amazing. And if we rewind all the way back to the beginning of Marvel before the films, it was basically a toys business. They'd licensed out all the characters. And so uh, a broader question about the IP. We spoke to Todd McFarlane earlier this year, who was talking about the different pillars that he wanted to sell his IP through, whether that be toys, films, TV, etc. As you think about the broader picture of IP, what do you see as the goal? Or is it different for every different company? Is it to sell toys? Is it to sell movies? Are there the more lucrative channels or the more broad distribution channels?
2: It will depend who you ask at Marvel what the goal is. And certainly something we chronicle in the book is this battle between marvel east coast and marvel west coast about the content of the movies and marvel east coast run toy biz exec ike perlmutter is running marvel at the time he is very toy centric in his ideas of what these stories should be kind of sees these movies as advertising for merch we make these movies and we sell action figures and bed sheets and underwear and whatever it is off the movies his opinion on what the movie should be or more to the point, who should be starring in these movies was very dependent on his ideas about merchandise and the toys and stuff like that. However, I think if you talk to someone like David Mazel, who was instrumental in the early days of Marvel, putting these early contracts together, launching Marvel Studios, he will say on the IP front that it's that familiarity of brand that will get people to come back and back and back. He talked to us a lot about this concept that in Hollywood, a sequel will almost always make as much as, if not more than the original movie in the franchise. That's just a rule of Hollywood. Even if as many of us think the sequel's not as good as the original, which is often the case.
1: You're still going to watch it.
2: Yeah, and the sequel will make more money because people caught the original movie at home. They're familiar with what it is. And so the proliferation of IP in Hollywood, which is everywhere, obviously, it's the Hollywood world we're living in, I think comes from that fear space from the studios that launching something new, something original, is not going to pull people in. But if you say, hey, you like Barbie, do you want to see a movie starring Barbie? That familiarity will loop people in. And so David Maisel takes that idea of sequels and familiarity, and it's all part of the establishing this idea of the MCU, where every movie is not necessarily a direct sequel to what came before it, but through Avengers Endgame was essentially one long sequelized story and that paid off. He was right about it. So it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of threads to pull on there. I think on the characters and the film familiarity, one of the biggest things that stands out to me is that in hindsight, it feels obvious. You have Captain America and Iron Man. But in reality, I didn't actually know who they were at the time when Marvel first took them back and took control over those characters and i think it's easy to forget that they were these lesser known d-grade characters and i just wonder what do you think the lesson is there because there are other forms of ip that are arguably much better known that haven't been executed on as well. And maybe that's where the lesson is. It lies somewhere in the execution, but it wasn't the prime IP until it became the prime IP after the success. Do you think there's a lesson there just in terms of all this focus on IP management on brand and what that can do?
2: I think that's a brilliant point. And I definitely think it's an easy and maybe too easy comp to make. But if you look at what Warner Brothers and DC did with Batman and Superman under the Snyderverse era and into what they're doing now, like with The Flash that came out this year. It matters that the movies are are good. It matters that the characters are characters you feel like you can emotionally invest in. Plenty of people love those movies. I'm not saying that they don't. But the quality matters. The heart matters. Your emotional investment matters. And I do think there is an interesting advantage in something like Iron Man, and Captain America, and Thor, and to a lesser degree, Hulk, but those are the four characters that they launched the MCU with. That lack of familiarity, and here I'm stealing from my Ringer colleague, Andy Greenwald, who said this recently, on the watch, the lack of familiarity with those characters was an advantage to Marvel, because even though Marvel as a brand meant something, to your point, those characters weren't the popular comic book characters at the time. And so there's less of a risk, I suppose, or more accurately, less of the burden of expectation of like, this is what Tony Stark has to be. This is what Steve Rogers has to be. And so when you're introducing these film versions of these comic book characters, audiences then can latch on to, oh, Tony Stark is Robert Downey Jr.'s, Steve Rogers is Chris Evans. Natasha Romanoff is Scarlett Johansson. And I love that you say the be great thing. That's one of my favorite Variety headlines at the time when they announced the slate at Comic-Con and Variety's like, oh, the B-list. Here comes the B-list. Iron Man and Captain America or whatever. It was like a secret little advantage to them. So I guess the lesson is IP is all very well and good, but A, you have to actually execute it with heart and get us to emotionally invest in those characters. You can't just give us action figures to smash against each other. And then B, I keep thinking about Barbie as this incredible execution of IP where We are extremely familiar with Barbie, obviously, as a property, that there was just something different about the vision and approach of Greta Gerwig as she put that movie together that made it feel wildly unexpected at the same time.
1: The other thing that seems obvious now in hindsight is this cross-pollination of characters into the Avengers. And, you know, obviously you want all your stars together playing in a sandbox, But where do you sit on this now? Where Did it end up being the downfall in some respects of what's happened to the MCU? Or is it still a great idea and maybe it's just the execution that was slightly off?
2: So you're talking about the current era of Marvel where people are feeling they have to watch... 20 plus movies in order to understand anything that's going on. And something that just happened last week is that Marvel announces this new sub-brand, which is Marvel Spotlight. If they put the Marvel Spotlight brand on something, that means you don't have to do any homework. This is something separate. It's the opposite of their whole you gotta watch everything to know what's going on. And now people are like, oh, it's too much now for us to feel like we have to watch all the TV shows you're putting out on Disney Plus, all the movies that you've put out in the last 15 years etc and so It is really funny that they're starting that Marvel Spotlight brand with the TV show Echo, which they're binge dropping in January, because Echo is a character who, of course, was launched on a different Disney Plus show, Hawkeye. But I think to your point, they are now bumping against the limitations of this brilliant idea they had in the first place. It was absolutely brilliant. It worked, it worked, it worked, it worked, until this inflection point of Endgame where a lot of things happen at once. You've got Downey and Evans and Johansson etc leaving the franchise you've got COVID comes in and disrupts production you've got Chadwick Bozeman passes away you've got all these factors that are at play the Disney plus move to television that really disrupt. The rhythm and the momentum, I would say, of Marvel. Like, it's possible that we would have all just stayed swept up in the Marvel movement if post-Endgame everything had gone according to plan. But so many things happened that didn't go according to plan. And now we do find ourselves in a state where exactly the thing that hooked people in the first place is now feeling like a barrier of entry to newcomers, young viewers, all this sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Earlier this year, I tried to consume as much Kevin Feige content as I possibly could. And I remember him having a quote in an interview where he said, I remember going to a superhero movie or a comic book movie, and it was basically like you needed a glossary to understand what was going on. And people should never need a glossary to understand what's going on. And I feel like they very much do now... And the whole idea of a spotlight logo, that means, oh, what does spotlight mean? I need to look that up in a glossary. It almost feels like it detached from that symbolism in some ways. I wonder the movement they got in terms of getting these actors on these long-term contracts with these massive film commitments. The actors, whether they would have been this big anyway, it does feel like they were at different stages in their careers. And now they're all huge. And Chicken and the Egg was Marvel, the the key to all that. Could you recreate that in your mind if somebody set out to do it again today? Was that magic in a bottle or was there a formula to it that could be recreated?
2: I think what would prompt me to say, no, you can't recreate it is the number of times we've seen people try and fail to already recreate. My favorite example of this will always be the Dark Universe soft launch that Universal did, where they did a group photo of all the actors that were going to be in their upcoming monster movies, where it was Johnny Depp and Tom Cruise and Javier Bardem and all the stuff like that. And then that franchise never manifested. And it remains one of the most embarrassing artifacts of running before you walk in Hollywood. And if you ask. Feige, which I did years ago when I was sitting in his office with him, what advice would you give other studios? And he's like, well, first of all, I would never give anyone advice. But if I did, a sort of walk before you run mentality. You have to make a good Iron Man movie and a good Captain America movie and a good Thor movie before you can make an Avengers movie. And I think that's what a lot of people get wrong about building their franchise." I hate Tim Volk's X Snyder again, because I am historically, that whole thing is so fraught. But Snyder himself, he wanted to make Man of Steel and Man of Steel 2 and his overlords at Warner Brothers are like, no, it's Batman v Superman. We're ready. Let's go. We're already in it. We're already running towards our Justice League movie, our Avengers. And so it's possible that the Snyderverse or DCEU, or however you like to call it, if they had done that much slower, steadier pace towards their team-up movie, that would have worked out better. But to your point, and we loved chronicling this in the book, there are so many unlikely factors that come together to create the MCU in the first place. There's a reason I rank Kevin Feige number one, because I think without his creative genius and without him existing as this eye of the needle that all of the MCU passes through, you don't get what you get. But just a number of every little casting decision, every little director hired where we were as a culture in terms of the kind of stories that we were craving. All of that comes together to create the MCU in the first place.
0: Yeah, on Feige, if you were to boil down his superpower, because again, he is not the senior most person within Marvel when Marvel first launches, not the senior most person at Disney. There is all types of the challenges when it comes to red tape and power people, egos, talent, everything. What do you think is the superpower that makes him truly exceptional and the most important piece in this puzzle?
2: Can I cheat and give two?
0: Bulls. Yeah. (laughs) Acceptable. Yeah.
2: A good old smuggle. I will say that twofold. One is Kevin's diplomatic sense his relationship building that he does better than anyone when we talk to people who were more senior to him whether it's Lauren Shuler Donner who hired him as her assistant in the first place or Avia Rod who was running Marvel for a time with Kevin underneath him or David Mazel, who was running Marvel for a time with Kevin underneath him it's like sir okay what was it about this kid that moved him up the ranks of the ladder so quickly because he did rise to power fairly quickly. In Marvel, and it was just like he was quiet, he was genial, he was all these things, and then he would just pipe up with a great idea. He just doesn't burn bridges, with the exception of Edward Norton and perhaps slightly Joss Whedon. Most of the bridges that Feige has ever built with anyone. If you talk to Avi Arad or Dave Mazel, who hated each other and were at loggerheads the whole time that they were coexisting at Marvel, but they both love Kevin and Kevin has a good relationship with both of them. You know what I mean? So Kevin didn't have to take a side and both mom and dad love Kevin. (laughs) Every actor's ever talked to him. I remember I was interviewing one of the composers who has ever worked on a Marvel movie about something. We have so many interviews that we couldn't even get into the book. And she was just talking about how he response to emails, met her backstage something, remembered every little thing she ever said. Just those little relationships. When Kevin turns his attention to you, the sun is shining on you. That's so important, that relationship stuff. But that relationship stuff won't get you there without his creative sense. And he just has a gift for blockbuster storytelling. And this comes from instead of collecting comics as a kid, he was just constantly going to the movie theater, literally taking his notebook and taking notes on the Amblin, movies, Back to the Future, Star Wars, all these 80s and 90s and late 70s blockbusters that he was obsessed with. That's what he grew up studying. So that even though he applied and failed to get into film school again and again and again until he finally got in, he created his own little film school as a kid, I think, just by naturally studying this stuff and absorbing that idea of story. And so the fact that he comes to these Marvel movies not as a comic book nerd first, but but as a blockbuster, great sense of story guy and is an executive, a head of a studio that is also a creative producer and some would say de facto director of kinds on all of these movies. I really could talk to you about intricacies of Kevin Feige all day. He's a fascinating figure.
1: Oh, yeah, we're here for it as well. Don't right. worry. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting you said that his advice to other studios would be walk before you can run because I would love for you to detail how those first films got off the ground, how he and the group at the time bets or the house on these initial films in particular kind of the financing for it and how they borrowed money to launch Iron Man and the other films that they did.
2: I wish you could have seen the weeks and maybe months because I am not a naturally finance contract minded person but the months I spent Really getting my head around the intricacies of the Merrill Lynch deal, which is the big deal that puts Marvel Studios into financing in the first place. We had the absolute joy and privilege of talking to David Mazel for many hours for this book. And David Mazel is the person who put together the famed Merrill Lynch deal, where he's given the green light by Ike Perlmutter, head of Marvel. Sure, go ahead, go make your movies, but we're not going to give you one thin red dime to do it. So you figure out the financing. Okay. A couple things happen in terms of them making some animated movies as proof of concept. But then ultimately, Maisel starts shopping this idea of Marvel Studios around to these various financial institutions and is turned down, is turned down, is turned down. And then he gets to Merrill Lynch and he makes this bid to Merrill Lynch where he says, here is a roster of characters we have. We have to Matt's point. The B list. We have Iron Man. We have the A-minus list. (laughs) Captain America. We have Black Panther. We have Cloak and Dagger. We have all these various things. And the absolute genius of David Mazel having to take that roster of characters and say, Hey Merrill Lynch, will you finance our studio? 400 million million, I believe it is right. Will you finance our studio and we're going to leverage the rights? To these characters, and they, oh, are they worth that money? Oh, you may not have heard of Iron Man, but people have, and they are worth a lot of money. So he has to sell that idea. At the same time, he has to go to the Marvel executive board and say, guys, don't worry. These are bargain basement characters that we're leveraging here, and it will not be a big deal if we lose the rights to Iron Man and Captain America and Thor and stuff like that. So he has to tell Marvel these characters are worth nothing and tell Merrill Lynch these characters are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. They get the Merrill Lynch deal done. There's some loopholes and caveats and footnotes about them having to get foreign sales and all the stuff to underwrite it but he pulls it off they get their what david calls their at bats their chances of making movies the clock is ticking you have this many movies to pay back the Maryland deal and they make iron man and iron man makes i think the technical term is a gajillion dollars And then they, in very short order, pay the Merrill Lynch loan off and we're off to the races. But when you look at that first Iron Man movie, and Feige himself has said this, it's essentially an independent film. And they treated it that way. Favreau and Downey are sort of writing... Dialogue in the trailers—they're making it. Bridges is like, I don't like that man. I'm not a fan of that. The quote we have in the book from Bridges about that is, Bridges saying, "Well, then I just started thinking about it as an independent, almost student film, and I just calmed down about it." You're like, "Oh, sure, sure." That little budget indie Iron Man. But that was the maverick mentality in making Iron Man. And Marvel East Coast, Ike Perlmutter, the executive board, all of them, were not really paying attention to Iron Man because they're like, go make your little movie. Again, we're not going to finance it. We don't care. Zero risk to us if it doesn't come through. And then once the movies start making money hand over fist, then Marvel East Coast is like, oh, what are you doing out there? We're a little interested in that. We have, we have some opinions about what you're doing.
0: When you think about those early days and you have someone like John Favreau involved, and I think he was saying in the book, he didn't buy the whole MCU universe cross-pollination, was in the works from day one. He thought about it as his indie film. Where do you stand in terms of that always being the plan in the back of Feige's head? Or maybe it wasn't a plan, but he kept optionality. When you listen to how everyone talks about it, where was that from day one versus when did it become this is something that we're going to turn into a reality?
2: Such a fun thing to chase because understandably, everyone wants a little bit of credit or all the credit for coming up with the idea of the connected MCU. So was it Kevin Feige? Was it David Maisel? Was it Avi Arad who came up with this idea? I feel like I can say with certainty after talking to a lot of different people, it was not Avi Arad. Avi really likes to take credit for this. It was not. Avi claims that he pitched this in this year, and then you can't find a single person at Marvel to corroborate that story. He has plenty of things that he has accomplished. He's also just a bit of a fabulist. Let's take Avi out of the equation. So between David Maisel and Kevin Feige, who came up with the MCU and was it the plan from the beginning? I believe David, when he says this idea of sequelizing, franchising, building a profitability was something that he had in mind. And I believe Kevin Feige, when he talks about creatively taking his lead from the comics and the comics being a place where everything is interconnected as something that helps build the idea. So I just feel like the idea was simmering around in the background. But if Iron Man hadn't worked as well as it did, I don't know that you get... Tony Stark at the end of Hulk. Favreau certainly didn't know Tony Stark was going to show up at the end of Hulk. And as we outline in the book, Nick Fury showing up at the end of Iron Man wasn't this big declaration of intent. It was meant as a little treat for hardcore comic book fans. And so a lot of these things that people see as, oh, they had this all planned from the start were little Easter eggs for the fan. That's how Thanos gets into the end of Avengers. It's Joss Whedon giving a little Easter egg for fans. And and so you have folks talk now about Marvel and its lack of direction or plan because they have this wild misconception about The early days. And some people think that Thanos was the plan from the start, but that wasn't the case or that the Infinity Stones were the plan from the start. And that wasn't the case. To actually answer your question, where do I stand on it being... I think they had it as a possibility. I think when Feige says at Comic-Con, well, if you look at our lineup and we've got Iron Man and we've got Captain America and we've got Thor, and if you know your comics, like you know where that could be heading. I think that's on their minds but not a certainty until those individual installments start doing as well as they do
0: that makes a lot of sense yeah it's almost like preserving the optionality is the most important thing just not burning the bridge in the future that could exist how big of an issue was hulk and how much of that was not edward morton who i don't think will worry if we say it pin it on him but Edward Norton versus anything else involved in that production. What was the big issue there? And how much of a risk was that to the overall ecosystem? Thank you so much for asking about the Hulk. This
2: is one of my favorite (laughs) things to talk about, especially on a business-flavored podcast, because this is another contract fascination for me, where the reason Marvel has to launch the MCU with the B-list is because their A-list, X-Men, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, have all been option out to other studios. So Fox has X-Men and Sony has Spider-Man and Universal has Hulk. Ang Lee made a Hulk film for Universal and they were like, well, that wasn't exactly what we wanted to do with that character. So every other character, Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, eventually Guardians of the Galaxy, et cetera, et cetera. These are characters owned by Marvel. Hulk is the only one that has a complicated ownership around him. And again, David Maisel, who I just find so fascinating and has largely been left out of the Marvel story. And so I'm really glad that we got to celebrate his nerdy contract brain because he goes over to Universal. First of all, he has all these relationships with various Hollywood people because he's been working in Hollywood for a while. So he's got relationships over at Universal. So he goes over to Universal. He's like, let's make a deal. What do we need to do to figure out how to do a Hulk movie? Because they wanted to start with Hulk because, to go back to that merchandise question, Hulk toys had always sold yeah. for them. So Hulk is the that-
0: character I knew. Too. Yeah,
2: exactly. I knew that because there was the old TV show. They want to do a Hulk movie. They have to work with Universal in order to do that. David Mazel finds a loophole in the contract language where they figure out that if Hulk isn't the named character in the title of the movie, they don't have to play with Universal. So they play with Universal for the first Hulk movie with Edward Norton. Edward Norton is a problem on the set of Hulk in that... He's the star. He's not the director, but he's trying to be the director. He's trying to have Final Cut. He wants a really moody, psychologically intense Hulk, which is like an interesting idea. I'm not saying that would have been a bad movie, but if Feige and Maisel, et cetera, have in the back of their mind that at some point we would like all of these characters to play together, that moody... I think it just came out recently that he wanted Radiohead on the soundtrack, that that (laughs) version of Ever Norton's Hulk is not necessarily going to be able to play in the same sandbox as Robert Johnny Jr.'s Tony Stark. You can hang out with
0: Pattinson's Batman.
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Interesting. God, I love the Batman. So Norton is a problem. As I said, Feige... Big relationship guy. The only public statement he has ever made against anyone, it was Edward Norton. He was like, we look forward to working with all these actors again. Not you, Edward Norton, essentially. I mean, it's just as harsh as Feige has ever gotten in public, and he was still fairly polite. But going forward, Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk is not going to be the named lead of any movie going forward. You're never going to get a Disney-owned Hulk movie. You're going to get something like Thor Ragnarok, where Hulk is essentially the co-lead, but it's not Thor and Hulk colon Ragnarok because then they have to work with Universal. So by a loophole of language alone, they get ownership of Ruffalo as Hulk. And then they are able to make stuff like She-Hulk, etc. That is also allowed under the contract I think the terms of the Universal deal might be up soon, so we might get a Hulk movie at some point in the future. But again, just very deeply nerdy minutia, contract minutia that David Mazel figured out that I love.
1: I love that same. I would love to be in the Universal boardroom when that comes out and they, they, see, they see what's <laughs> happened there. In the timeline of all this stuff, I was so intrigued by how quick the Disney acquisition comes post the first Iron Man. How much deliberation was there over the acquisition or was it like we need the cash injection and so this makes perfect sense? We don't need to think about it too much.
2: Less a cash injection and more, again, we want full ownership of what we're doing. So they were partnering like Paramount as a distributor for their movies before the Disney deal. They didn't want to have to work with anyone. They wanted it just all for themselves. And so with the Disney acquisition comes the massive amount of muscle, the Hulk size marketing team and in-house distro and all of that sort of stuff. So I think that was key in their mind. It just made them feel, even though they're owned by Disney, much more their own thing. And Disney as part of the deal, there was this big concern from Perlmutter, from various people of what is Disney acquiring us mean in terms of our own individual brand. And that's when Iger, Bob Iger at the time is saying, we're going to treat you like Pixar, which Pixar is allowed to be its own thing under our umbrella, and even got Steve Jobs involved and Steve Jobs on the phone to talk to Ike about what Marvel could look like, how independent it could feel, how it could keep its own flavor, its own brand. But on the Disney side of thing, Disney is looking to diversify it's portfolio because they've got corner of the market on princess. I hate thinking of things in terms of cold, hard gender norms, but we got the girls Via the princesses, we want the Jedis and the superheroes for the boys. That's their thinking. And so they're going after Lucasfilm. and They're going after Marvel in order to flesh all of that out. But I do know because David Mazel, who negotiates the Disney deal and then leaves, he's like, I did it, (laughs) guys. I built this up from literally nothing to a $4 billion Disney deal within a span of a couple of years. Look what I've done. I'm tired. I'm, I'm done now. But I think... He had this relationship with Bob Iger because, again, he had worked with these various people before. And Iger at first was like, nah, I don't know. We're not that interested. And then they saw what Iron Man did. And they're like, actually, we are very interested in what you're doing over there.
0: In terms of Hall of Fame reference checks, being able to call Steve Jobs and have him explain (laughs) that he kept autonomy is probably number one in the Hall of Fame. And I don't even know what would be number two. Reading that detail was just... Unbelievable. And I'm glad that you reemphasized Mizell's importance because as people that identify with investors a lot, I think investors get blamed for not creating anything in the world oftentimes. But you know, without Mizell and that creative structuring, there would be no marvel. So uh, give some credit to the investment mindset, at the very least.
2: What I love about David, and this is something that he really, in addition to his brilliant contract mind, like he is a creatively minded Guy and he did have ideas about story and if you he let me come and hang out in his apartment for a couple of hours and he's just got a bunch of like, Iron Man stuff around he loves Iron Man he always has he cares about the characters in and above the financial opportunity that he saw he saw characters and stories that he had real passion for and that was sort of all came together in this perfect storm it's pretty incredible
1: sounds like we need to go back to that stack rank and put him at the top. And then Funky. Yeah, I mean, it's,
2: <laughs> yeah. he matters.
1: He's on the list.
2: <laughs> I would put him above VFX, probably. All right. That'd okay. VFX yeah. 5.
0: In the rise to the peak, which I'll say that Endgame was the peak, even though the story is not finished, it's ongoing. But yeah, it's maybe be fair. It seemed like everything was going right to the point where even something like Guardians of the Galaxy was a smash hit. And I think. Looking back, it's very hard to predict something like that. Do you think that there were any issues bubbling up at that time, which could have predicted that post-end game, maybe it came down off of peak? Or do you think it's simply part of the cycle? I'm just curious. It felt like there was a moment in time where they had the golden touch. And was that an accurate depiction of what was going on then? Or were there things boiling under the surface that could have been obvious after the fact?
2: That's a great question. I don't think so. I don't think they had any reason to expect that their legs would come out from under them as much as they have in the last couple of years. I agree with you. I have been a little defensive of Marvel in in the face of some of these Marvel's over stories. I think it's a little premature to say that, but I do think it will be nigh impossible for them to go back to the heights of Endgame because there was a lot going on in the global box office sphere or the way that we watch movies that was forever changed by COVID and all these other things that happened. People who are critical of Marvel say they didn't plan for post endgame, and that's just wildly untrue because they had years in advance to tried to plant these seeds of a next generation. Be it with Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange, or Paul Rudd as Scott Lang, or Brie Larson as Carol Danvers, or Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa and Chadwick Boseman, especially because he got this massive. I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was this. We talked about it in the book, but there was this. Big Marvel event that they put on that wasn't at Comic Con, it wasn't at D twenty three. It was an own Marvel thing that people inside Marvel called Kevin Con, where Kevin Feige gets control of Marvel and he's like, finally, I get to make my Black Panther movie that I've actually wanted to make from the start. And these, I will say, somewhat racist. East Coast Marvel people don't think we can turn a profit on a Black Panther movie. Who introduces Chadwick Bozeman? Who introduces T'Challa to the crowd that day? It's Downey and Evans walk out, anointing Chadwick Bozeman as the new king of the franchise. And so they pinned a lot of hopes on Bozeman to lead. They pinned a lot of hopes on Cumberbatch to lead. They pinned a lot of hopes on Brie Larson to lead. And they didn't quite hit the way that they wanted to. Chadwick Boseman passes away. Tom Holland is Spider-Man is a massive hit for them, is always a hit for them, but is, speaking of entangled contracts and custody rights, is a complicated relationship with Sony that is not a constant for them. So while I don't think that there's anything that I could point to bubbling under the surface as surely you guys must have seen this coming post end game, I think what's true is a number of events outside of their control came and knocked their pretty little plan off the tracks.
1: Would it be way too simplistic just to say at some point gravity is going to get you? The bigger you get, at some point you can't just keep nailing it. The laws of physics don't seem to work that way.
2: (laughs) I love the way you put that. I think that's a decent point to make. I think also only because I haven't, I think, underlined it in this conversation, we can't undersell how important the Disney Plus era, the Bob Iger mandate for content, the insistence that Marvel ramp up from making three to four movies a year to making all these movies plus all these TV shows and just stretching their whole apparatus way too thin across all of these properties. That is a huge dilution of brand and a huge blow to the brand. So I think that's true. I think to your point about Gravity... Marvel starts to sort of crack under the weight of its own history, of its own things start to feel like homework concept. And then I think I would identify very, very, very specifically in this last week with earlier reviews of the Marvels, which we're speaking on a Thursday, comes out today, that there is some glee that happens in knocking someone off a high pedestal. And I think what we're seeing right now is, in plenty of cases, an honest Critical reaction to the lessening of quality of Marvel, and in some other cases, or at least boosted by us a- kicking something off a pedestal and having some fun doing that. I just feel like the knives are out for Marvel in a way they've never been in the last year. Even when, like, our Hollywood luminaries like Martin Scorsese or Francis Ford Coppola or anyone else is saying, hey, man, these superhero movies aren't it. It's a way different tone than what we're dealing with right now, and again, plenty of that is just a reaction to movies and TV shows that simply aren't as good as they once were. I think that is just pretty much across the board true, but it just feels gleeful to a certain degree, and I think that is that gravity's going to get you mentality for sure.
0: Yeah, you go from the hero to the villain in many ways, and how fitting for this type of story. On the movies versus TV point, it is interesting because it felt like over that era of success, the box office was getting smaller, or at least it felt like movies were going out of vogue and prestige TV and TV was coming more into vogue. And if anything, I think about the plan with these movies and the interconnectedness to have similarities to television with episodes and you get people attached where their attention spent is there. From reading the book, my sense was that TV was never really a success. It wasn't total fail. One, is that a fair classification that TV hasn't been a success for Marvel? And two, what would you put it on besides what you mentioned there with dilution of resources? Is there anything else that's played into their inability to really hook with television?
2: The pre Kevin Feige takes over Marvel television, because for a long time, Jeff Loeb is the person who was in charge of Marvel television. And there was a battle between Jeff and Kevin over who gets to tell which stories or which properties. And that's, again, mandated by Marvel Entertainment. One of my favorite examples of that is that Kevin announces they're going to make an Inhumans movie. And then... The powers that be at Marvel decide, no, we're going to give that to Jeff Loeb to make a TV show. And then it's like one of the worst TV shows that anyone has ever made. That it was like a custody battle that Kevin and Marvel lost. And so Kevin was certainly thrilled when... Bob Iger at Disney gives him control of everything you get control of comic books of TV of Marvel you get full control of the brand so you no longer have to have these Jeff Loeb orchestrated shows that you feel are taking a ding of your brand there's of course also the battle behind Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where Joss Whedon and Jeff Loeb launch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Feige's like well that's cute S.H.I.E.L.D. is Hydra now in our movies so good luck with your little show That stuff was happening behind the scenes, which is wild to me. You know, certainly some of those Netflix shows went. Daredevil was a great hit for them. Jessica Jones was a solid hit for them. Luke Cage, then Iron Fist came along and the Defenders came along and everything sort of fell apart over there. I think that the real problem with the Disney Plus era of Marvel shows is and we detail this in the book, is somewhat hubristically, I think, Marvel Studios felt like they could reinvent the wheel on television. Similar, They had done it for filmmaking, and everyone had been following their lead at filmmaking. So I understand where that hubris comes from. They're top of the world. Endgame is the biggest movie in the world until Jim Cameron gets threatened and re-releases Avatar. But They're kings of the world. And so they're like, well, we'll make television, but we'll do it like our movies, because that's been a successful model for us. And we have a quote from Nate Moore, one of the great creative producers at Marvel. He's a brilliant man, but he says something like, oh, yeah, I was learning from Malcolm Spellman, who was the head writer in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, about how to make television. And I'm like, I don't know. I feel like if you find yourself in charge of the TV division of Marvel, it might behoove you to hire some high up people in your company who know how to make television, but instead they thought, well, we'll learn what we need to learn from our head writers and then we'll kind of make TV. Like we make our movies and TV is just simply a different medium. It just is. And they are acknowledging that now. And they're out there giving interviews. I think it was Brad Winterbaum who gave this interview in THR where he's saying, OK, we're going to start to do pilot pilots. Have you heard of them? We're going to start piloting television. We're starting to hire showrunners instead of they were calling the people in charge of their shows head writers. What that will require for Marvel is a loss of control, which is something that they've enjoyed so much over their movies. But it's just what needs to happen, I think, for them to succeed in the television sphere.
1: You mentioned before we hit record that there's some really interesting stuff that maybe is going a bit unnoticed at the moment in terms of the inside Marvel and what's happening today. Can you flesh out some of those thoughts that you don't think are being fully appreciated by people?
2: Maybe it's putting too much faith in Kevin Feige, but he has such a track record that I don't think it's out of pocket to say this, that I think if it were up to Feige, he would not have flooded the field with content the way that they did with Disney Plus. Feige has always been, again, we already talked about this sort of walk before you run, slow, methodical storyteller. And you can see that with when Disney acquires Fox, question Kevin Feige gets at every single interview after that is, when are the X-Men coming? When is the Fantastic Four coming? When are you going to do that? And he's like, when it's right, when we figured it out, when we know what we're doing with them. These are very important properties, and we don't want to just rush them out. But we outline this in the book. Once Bob Iger leaves Disney, he's back at Disney now, but when he left out the door, his mandate is content, content, content. Bob Chapek takes over briefly for Bob Iger. Bob Chapek not a relationship guy. He is a parks guy, a money guy. He puts together this. I think Iger was still technically there when this happened, but he put together this investor day presentation in 2021. That was this absolutely bananas, strange hybrid of putting together something to calm the investors in the face of COVID with look at all the stuff that we have coming up please keep investing in us. We have so much. No, we can't operate our parks and our cruises right now, but we've got all this content coming. Stay tuned. And it was also supposed to be for the fans as well. It was just such a weird little hybrid event that didn't really make sense for anybody. But what I do know behind the scenes, is that both Kevin Feige and Kathy Kennedy of Lucasfilm were forced to announce a bunch of projects they were not ready to announce. At Lucasfilm, a lot of those projects have quietly been canceled and gone away. With Marvel, those projects were shuffled around because they weren't ready to announce all of those projects. And so I think Feige has felt, even though he is technically in charge of the full Empire now, he was not in charge of the pace. That slow, methodical quality control that they had before was ripped out of his hands and the whole team is just running to try to catch up. And so I think with Eiger back, and Eiger has done this hilarious, this is just truly one of the funniest things in the whole world, where he's like, who turned yeah, on the yeah. content tab? Who did this? When he's definitely the one who did it on his way out the door. But he's like, We're guess what, guys? We're going to do less. We're going to drill down on what's working. I don't know whose idea this was, but I'm going to fix it. And their plan is to slow down and rehab the brand. And I think in this, is Marvel over narrative is so premature because, again, they've got the Fantastic Four in their back pocket. They've got the X-Men in their back pocket. They are still making so much money on these properties to say that X-Men is a flopola, but is still one of the top 10 movies of the year. Guardians of the Galaxy was not only a financial success, but actually a critical and commercial fandom success. And that happened this year, in the year that Marvel has failed. So I think it's fair to say Marvel is stumbling. I think it's fair to say that Secret Invasion, a Marvel TV show that came out this year was genuinely terrible and a waste of a lot of tremendous talent. So I'm not trying to rose-colored glasses this thing, but I think it's a little too soon to hang crepe on Marvel. So they've got a lot of places they can go.
0: It's not quite maybe as bad as it's made out to be, but there are a lot of people that wish it were that way, to your earlier point, just in terms of maybe the envy-fueled hate, almost, that, that gets directed their way with the anger and sometimes the accusation that Marvel has ruined movies, what is your response in terms of how much of a role they played in a lot of those things not seeming to exist anymore?
2: I am not Marvel PR and I am not friends with anyone who works at Marvel. They did not want us to write this book, so (laughs) I don't think they count me among their friends. I genuinely felt personally bad for Kevin Feige about that because all he wanted to do his whole life was make movies and he loves movies. And then some of his most lauded heroes are like, you've ruined movies. I was like, that's so sad. I think, is it Marvel's fault? I don't know. Marvel was making all this money, so everyone tried to copy Marvel. And I think if it had just been Marvel doing its thing, we don't, wind up with this great imbalance of storytelling. But when it's every other studio looking at Marvel and thinking that's the only way to do things, and we know this for a fact from the Sony hack that happened, so we get to see all these Sony execs talking about chasing what Marvel has done, and you have to imagine those same conversations are happening all around the town. So everyone trying to be Marvel is why we're really here. And there's also what's true is... No matter what, even if Marvel hadn't been there, the movie-going habits of people would have changed anyway with a number of other factors. We've been talking about this for years and years and years, the way that technology is such that you can have an incredible home theater essentially you've got your gorgeous surround sound your huge television and so you don't have to pay the babysitter and pay all the money to go out you can just watch at home netflix is certainly has to be in the conversation around this and the binge culture and all of that all of that has changed the way that people watch movies we talk about all the time how we don't have movie stars the way we used to and you know it's all gotten smaller and diluted and so going to the movie theater isn't what it once was for people. And so for a time, going to the movie theater just meant it needs to be something that is so big, I need to see it on the big screen. And that's not just Marvel, that's stuff. I put on my mask to go see Dune and IMAX during COVID. I had to see Dune on the big screen. So there's other movies that are feeding that need. But movie going for a large percentage of the population becomes about spectacle, and certainly for international audiences, where there's a language barrier, the international box office success that you can have comes from delivering these movies that are easier for people to follow. When there's just get-all ends and a big CGI punch fest, and they're like, "Sir, I, I get it. Universal language of punching. I understand." I don't think it's fair to lay it all at Marvel, but I think what's true is that Marvel did it really, really well and was making so much money that, of course, people are going to try to chase that, and then the whole thing just tips way out of balance. And I think what we're seeing right now, not just with Marvel, the Marvel wobble as I like to call it, but the reckoning of... The DC movies, which, you know, Black Adam or The Flash, all genuinely terrible movies. You can no longer slap tights and a cape on something and expect that people are just going to line up. People are, have become much more skeptical of that. And my hope is what that means is we will see, yes, a ramping down of superhero content. And so what will remain are the good movies, that's the hope. And then in that vacuum can come back some of these other stories that we wanna have to balance it all out. That's my hope anyway.
0: Well, it was an excellent book. I think it's one that today, even 10, 20 years from now, it captures the moment in the history with the actual facts and what was going inside the system. It's so easy to tell ourselves a story of, oh, well, they had these great characters. So obviously, that was going to be a success. I think it really gets under that. And this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, my gosh. Great questions. Thank you so much for having me. All
0: right, Dom, I'm going to start by saying this. When we came up with that ranking list of importance to Marvel. I had an answer that I wanted to hear. Do you think I got that answer?
1: Remind me, it's Feige, then the actors, then the characters, then the technology. Yeah, I think you wanted Feige first. Correct. And I got the answer that I wanted to hear. (laughs) But then it turns out that we're missing one. We're missing a key ingredient, the finance guy.
0: Which is one that we should have had more appreciation for because... I did think about the creativity that was involved in that structuring and to get that financing done to make those movies is absolutely insane. And Meisel has this weird chapter there where he's there for a little while. He wins out this little battle. Then he goes off. He's able to get that done. Then the Disney sell. Ha- it's this short chapter, but it's insanely important. And his name really doesn't get mentioned. So I agree with you. I'm glad we got some airtime on Meisel too. But Kevin Feige, I think, is just such an important piece of all this. And I kept looking for reasons why maybe that was overstated over the past few months and then reading this book. And it just doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like that was the real difference maker here.
1: Yeah. And you said you went on a little Kevin Feige deep dive earlier this year. Talk me through what that unearthed, if anything
0: different from what we
1: just heard. Well,
0: I think it's my tendency when I find somebody that I'm very interested in, I will try to research as much as possible about appearances they've made any type of interviews. Oftentimes, it's podcasts or YouTube, or maybe they've given quotes. And you can fill up a weekend's worth of 10 hours of content. So that's what I did with Feige. And I think one of the most interesting things he mentioned was that he didn't come from this place of loving comic books, that most of his experience with movies in this genre, where it was taking historical IP and converting it to the big screen... It was tough because it was made for the hardcore fans, but a general population audience couldn't consume it that well. And that was the glossary thing. You can't require the audience to come in with a glossary so they understand everything that's going on. If you're going to do it, you have some Easter eggs that are there, but it doesn't distract you from the movie. You can understand it in total. And I thought that was really good insight vision amongst many other things. But he comes across as this really likable, not egotistical in any way humble, modest in so many ways and the ways he describes things. But that type of personality succeeding in the
1: environment that he did is just also super, super interesting. A hundred percent. And Joanna's book is great for a whole number of reasons. But she talks a ton about Feige's background and how he got to this position and then launching the MCU. And it's fascinating. All the little details in there about who he worked for and how he plotted his jobs leading up to this and then wrestled some control over his vision for what was to unfold over the coming decade is really well worth reading because there's so much of what we learn about across our shows about the best entrepreneurs and how tenacious they are and how driven they are. And she talked about how he was... Had a notebook out and he's just collecting ideas as he was going through life, even as a child. That ended up being part of what he's done with MCU. It all correlates to those other stories about excellent entrepreneurs that are probably more front and center or have more brand recognition than he does. I think he applied to film school six years in a row. I think that was the sixth time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which is absolutely nuts. And to me, just as useful for people because he wasn't the chosen one. He wasn't. This brainiac that got in on day one, he just kept going after it. And then he played his cards really well. And it is what it is. But you compare Marvel to DC when DC has substantially bigger characters, I think, prior to what has happened. And that really stands out. And you mentioned something there just in terms of entrepreneurs. The thing that comes out in this book is it was a scrappy upstart in many ways. What Favreau did with Iron Man and Downey Jr. and where Downey Jr. was in his career at that point, it was a comeback at that point for him because he had a downfall. So there was so much associated with that film and what the offices looked like then versus what they look like now. You can tell as old as time in terms of Facebook at the early days versus Facebook today and how different that looks. Google, another great example, and how things evolve and mature and it's inevitable
1: what ends up happening. But yeah, it's just crazy through this lens. We probably should have got ahead to articulate a bit of how tight they were as a film studio, and what the offices looked like, and how they how little money they spent on things. It was at one point, <laughs> isn't there somewhere like everyone in the office is using purple pens, and someone's like, "Why is everyone using purple pens?" Well, the multi pack we run out of the black and the blue, so we're onto the purple, I mean, we're not going to buy new pens until we run out of everything.
0: Yeah, it really is this crazy scrappiness. There were a lot of other things that I wanted to ask her about, too. They had this awesome, she talks about in the book, the writing program. It's basically that like they find interesting writers, keep them on staff, give them a long-term project associated with the characters where they can come up with their own ideas. But if they need them to rewrite scenes, they could just pull them in at any moment. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if there's something really creative that we could do with that. But it it was super interesting to hear all the different elements and things that they layered in over time. And they just try to differentiate hearing her talk about what was planned versus not planned. And she has such a good perspective on it.
1: Yeah, the operational complexity of... The, the sequence of all these films coming out and you always having to think f- further into the future and the writing process is happening alongside the filming process in some ways. And I think there are some sort of Chinese walls between people. Some, you know, Feige knows everything, but then some of the writers know some of it and they're in the dark on other things and they're told to rewrite bits because that doesn't fit with the, the previous. Just thinking about it is exploding my mind to be a fly on the wall and watch how those things actually unfolded during peak MCU was, would have been fascinating. Yes, a lot of moving parts. The other interesting thing is
0: how they pulled off the contracts and got the actors locked into X amount of films. Because what happens if you don't is the Tony Stark, you go from making X million or certain percentage to, oh, all of a sudden now, all of the money that's coming in is going directly to the actors. And they still did very, very well from all this. But it's getting that alignment long-term. Getting that off the start is just one less thing to worry about because there's so many moving parts and variables with this stuff. And especially when you have a universe like this, which is crazy. What do you think just about the cross-pollination stuff?
1: Seems like such a good idea. And that sounds so stupid, probably because it is. But I think it's one of those things where people well, sometimes when you go into a business or a project comes up and people think, what's the exit strategy here? That's kind of like their first thought that's a really difficult question to answer with this thing. It seems like, yeah, if you've got traction with these early characters, put them together, that'd be great. It's really hard to know then how you offload them. And particularly when you run into contract issues, people-based issues where either folks have decided that they've had enough of this or they've earned enough money out of it or even worse things happen to them. How do you move on from that? I guess clearly that's something they run up against. Let's not to say they can't do it again, but it would have to be a completely different franchise of characters. It's one of those things that seems like a great idea. And was a great idea. Unquestionably worked out incredibly well. I think that's where I get to with a lot of this MCU or with Marvel just in general. I think most things in life are cyclical and in business things are cyclical. You can't expect something to last forever. They made so much money, were so successful with the Avengers. And so at some point it was going to end. And that's fine. That's a natural thing. And then they're going to have to start up again. I like the way how she said it was the Marvel wobble at the moment. People are calling it the end, but they've got a decent muscle memory to pull from. They could quite easily just spin up the next cast of characters and do the same thing. Yeah, they do have just an
0: entirely different crew of characters that's waiting there. On the cross-pollination thing, I had this really interesting moment when we were at the Founders event for David Senra, and Patrick was interviewing him, and then we brought on Jeremy Giffen to the stage. And I looked in the crowd, and there were several people that looked... You know, at whoever they were with, and they were like, "Who is that?" So it was clear they were not listeners and invest like the best. They were founders, listeners. They were there for founders, and they had to explain, "Oh, this who is this person? Why are they here?" And it was just like this interesting reminder, like, "Oh no, not everybody knows what's going on over there, or knows what's going on over here." We even see that in the comments section sometimes, and the reviews, people saying, "Oh, you recommended this. I started listening to that." So it is an effective way for you to bring a certain fan's audience to another person or character, but I think what the ultimate upside is can be really complicated. And then just managing all that, it can go wrong if you don't manage it properly, where you're trying to align everything and you just make a worse product. So I think that happens from time to time too.
1: Yeah, there is an interesting throughout all our conversations, just in media, generally, it seems like there's an interesting balance between getting enough insider information into the show so that people who are loyal to whatever you're doing, feel like there's parts of it but you don't want too much that it becomes too high a hurdle for a new person to clear, to be like, what is going on here? Someone explain it to me. No, too much effort. I'll go somewhere else. There is Clearly, they've overset the mark at some point here. But we've talked to a bunch of people, particularly on the podcast side too. And Matt Levine, another great example of someone who you get his inside jokes and they pay off for you as a loyal reader. But as a new person, he's like just on the right side of the line. You need to figure out where to put them in and they can't
0: interrupt the actual content for somebody who isn't familiar with them. Some people just completely dismiss it and they make it for the diehards, which I respect too. (laughs) Yeah, I think the thing that would give me confidence on Marvel, besides just the fact that they've had a lot of success, is that they've shown the execution. So having an entirely new cast of characters like X-Men just opens up Fantastic Four, opens up some possibilities in terms of you could reboot those things in a completely different way. And I think a lot about IP is like, it's worth, it's not worthless, but it really does come down to execution because Barbie is one thing. Then you have so many bad IP movies and you have good IP movies. And it doesn't seem like it's necessarily tied to the underlying IP. If it's bad, it's bad, but it can be good. Lego has had success and it has nothing to really do with Lego. I think the execution is so, so important. And the IP itself is almost just, you can remove some of your marketing budget because you know, you can have some people show up because they're familiar with whatever it is that's underlining
1: it. Well, I think you also have to separate the execution of the product itself and the marketing of the product. And like that's one of the things that stood out to me about Barbie It was just unbelievable. The marketing efforts that they went to and the amount of money they spent to say, hey, you should go and watch this thing. And clearly people have heard of Barbie, but then they could be more creative about rather than explaining who Barbie is, putting them with these modern day characters and just everywhere you looked for a moment, Barbie was there. And maybe that is underappreciated with a bunch of these things. You have to make the thing great, of course, as a payoff when someone goes to watch it, then you get into word of mouth. But you first need to show people, tell people that this thing is out there and it's worth their time. Just, we're on a tangent now, but the other thing with Barbie is
0: having Oppenheimer play on the same weekend and them lining that up. People were like, why would you release on the same weekend? It turned into the best PR campaign ever for them collectively. And Barbie was, I think, substantially more successful, which is interesting. But there's a lot there with IP. I think it was so consensus. And like many things, consensus without execution is you can burn a hole in your pocket. Find Marvel to be like endlessly fascinating.
1: It was probably the most uncomfortable interview I've done on Making Media, just because i would so unfamiliar with the subject matter that you really carried me through. It was like being an underling. <laughs> and you, you often will, you'll write your question or you'll highlight something and say, do you want to ask this one? Today, you got to writing bullet points for me, just trying to coax me out of my cave. <laughs> I don't know. It was pretty passive aggressive. I was getting the picture that you wanted me to say something without actually writing anything other than a few dots. <laughs> No. So one, I feel bad because in the past, I've been accused
0: of hogging the questions. Not by me, may I say, which I've been trying to be much better at. And this one, I want to make this clear. You told me that I needed to carry some of the questions. So that is part of the reason. Number two, I did realize at one point, I'd set you up for some tough questions in terms of the ones you had to ask. And I was like... I hate when people tell me a question to ask. It's just not generally a good thing. So I was not only doing that, but then giving you a tough one. That's why I asked that last question about whether Marvel ruined movies. Because if
1: I'm telling you to ask that, that's like a sour question. So I pulled that one back. It's funny because I was looking at that question that he highlighted for me. And I was thinking, I can ask this. It's a very straightforward question to ask. But if Joanna tries to qualify, or he says, what do you mean? At that point, I'm going to be, I'm going very red in the face. But no, it worked okay in the end. And she was excellent. You can tell that she's a brilliant podcast. She was so eloquent, so energetic, despite having done a number of these talking about her book. So it was a thrill for me to listen to. I'm sorry for some of the questions. No, it was all good. I would tell you if you had bad questions. I've told you before. (laughs) But
0: yeah, Joanna was excellent. We shared some laughs after we stopped recording about what it's like to go on the press tour, which I can only imagine. Hopefully, you haven't heard her yet, but you should go buy her book. I believe this will be one of those barbarians at the gate type but for a different industry where it really just captures what was going on at the time i already feel like there's so much about marvel that's told from a after the fact standpoint of this success and just mischaracterized and this book just does a really good job of laying out facts versus fiction
1: definitely and it's thanksgiving this week so why don't you go out and buy the book oh wow what if we release it earlier than that i'll have to cut that out yes i think it's thanksgiving this week so enjoy it and enjoy the book as well all right thank you very much we will see you next week